0: equity, diversity, and inclusion, human-centered education in the midst of a technological tidal wave, student well-being in the classroom, and beyond. In this three-part series, I am thrilled to be able to sit down with three visionary educators who are shaping the trajectory of students and society at large through their work. A couple of years ago, I created a series all about the virtual reality of education, having just completed a full year of virtual teaching during the pandemic. I learned a lot through speaking with different voices in education, both locally and globally, as well as reflecting on my own teaching practices. It's pretty incredible how virtual teaching and learning pushed us all to grow and soften in different capacities. Now, two years later, I've been thinking about the ways in which teaching is continuing to shift in light of opportunities and challenges faced by all participants in the classroom. I can't wait for you to hear the ideas and the stories and the insights from the three guests featured in this series, including Gail Ann Wilson-Mitchell with the Alberta Teachers Association, sharing her life experiences and work in the space of equity, diversity and inclusion. Dr. Anna-Rita Moraes, chair of George Brown College's School of Design on Human-Centered Classrooms, and finally, Dr. Robin Bourgeois, professor, activist, artist, and vice provost Indigenous Engagement at Brock University, speaking about her approaches to student well-being. I've asked my good friend and colleague, Nat Lumby, who is the Interim Chair of the School of Graphic Communications Management at Toronto Metropolitan University, that's a mouthful, to co-host these three episodes with me. She has a passion for education, pedagogy, and making the world a better place through her leadership. Welcome Nat, I can't wait to learn more about all of these topics alongside you, and I'm curious. What are you most excited about in the forthcoming conversations?
2: I'm so excited for this lineup of speakers in this series, Diana. Thank you so much for including me. Um, For me, the experience of education at any level, whether it's at home or as part of a formal um, institution like a school, it's all about becoming a better human and in turn that creates a stronger society. So at the heart of all three of these conversations are really educators who take a student focused approach in building that humanity. As an academic, I'm sometimes criticized for being too soft with students. And so colleagues might say things like, you know, you're not helping them because um, out in the real world, quote unquote, um, nobody will do this uh, type of support. And I believe that students who are shown a little bit of empathy will carry that forward into their workplaces. And I mean, realistically, the real world needs a shakeup anyway. And so I hope that these three conversations will help to highlight some of the strengths of student or human-first approaches to education, and at the very least, help to unite educators who have already seen how successful um, this particular approach can be. Really excited to talk to uh, these three educators.
0: In this first episode, you'll hear from Gail Ann Wilson-Mitchell. Gail Ann is a cultural diversity educator with over 20 years of experience as a high school social studies teacher. She's committed to building capacity in aspiring diversity leaders after experiencing racial marginalization due to the underrepresentation of black female teachers in Alberta. Gail Ann focuses on cultural inclusivity in education, centered on pedagogies that dismantle systems of oppression. She also consults with businesses, government, and community groups on how to intentionally address anti-Black racism while building inclusive communities. Gail Ann is an accomplished public speaker that has led professional learning presentations and workshops for many school divisions and universities throughout Alberta and across Canada, promoting opportunities for collaboration in areas of common interest. She is also an award-winning journalist on the topic of anti-Black racism in Alberta schools. Her alma mater is the University of Alberta, where she graduated with a B.Ed. and a Master of Arts in Communication. Just to give you a bit of a backstory, Gail, Anne, and I met in graduate school in Edmonton in the spring of 2013, almost exactly 10 years ago. We instantly connected at a meet and greet held the day before the start of classes and thankfully exchanged phone numbers. It's a long story, but the next day, curled up in a ball in my rental apartment after having eaten bad food, she was literally the only person I could reach out to, having met her only hours earlier. Without hesitation, she showed up on my doorstep with food in hand, quite literally saving me that day. We became quick and close friends from that moment onwards. I was on the receiving end of Gail anns small-scale act of kindness and generosity that day in Edmonton. Now an entire provincial education board and its staff, students and stakeholders have the great fortune of being on the receiving end of Gale anns large-scale acts of kindness and generosity. In this conversation, Gail Ann shares her reality growing up being the only, a young Black girl and then woman and educator in Edmonton, including sharing her experiences in school. She describes important parts of her work, including her take on what she calls the six letter word, its historical context and its role in modern life. Gail Ann shares beautiful, vulnerable, heartbreaking stories about her work as a teacher and her forthcoming role in the Alberta Teachers Association, including describing the single most racist act she's ever endured. There's so much more captured in this conversation that ends with a powerful, accessible next step called to action for educators everywhere in fostering greater equity, diversity and inclusion in their classrooms. Let's listen in. Gail Ann, welcome. Thank you for having me. So can you tell us a bit about yourself and really what it was like growing up in Edmonton as a young black woman and more specifically, and I think we'll get into this kind of more organically as we move forward, but was the education system diverse when you were a student and what was that like?
1: Absolutely. So, I'll start by telling you just a little bit about myself. I uh, call myself a newcomer of over 40 years to Edmonton. Um, We can tack on a few years past the 40, but uh, my family migrated when I was uh, very, very young. In fact, so young that I hadn't even picked up an accent leaving home, and that was a very interesting part of how my identity formed. Um, After moving to, uh, to Edmonton, uh, we moved into um, some parts of the city that would be considered areas that more um, newcomers, I choose to use that term versus immigrants, uh, there were greater newcomer settlements. And so um, our initial uh, move took us to a part of the city where there was a greater concentration of folks that would identify as Black, more specifically Caribbean Black. Um, and from myself, coming from the Caribbean, I'm, uh, I originate from Trinidad So um, spending a little bit of time in those spaces, um, there really wasn't as many opportunities for work. The busing system and things like that didn't really afford my parents the chance to to have access to get to work very easily. So we moved to the south side of Edmonton. And I mention it because uh, in um, in terms of settlement, there was a really large concentration of South Asian folks that had settled in that area. And the predominant number of Caribbean folks had settled in the north side of Edmonton. So I spent quite a bit of time growing up without seeing a lot of people that look like me. I didn't attend schools that had a heavy concentration of kids that looked like me. And ultimately, it really shaped how I saw myself. And I would say that carried into probably about three decades of my life. So Edmonton itself didn't have the same um the same uh, community building that you would see in more metro areas like Toronto. So all of those are pieces that really, really impacted what it was like for me um, to grow up in this community. Quite honestly, I spent uh, a lot of my time, um, you know, seeing myself as uh, in some ta- in some cases an imposter. In other cases, I felt that I really just was not the acceptable student at school. So when I think about the education system specifically, and I think about Especially my my early years in education, there were some incredible challenges to going to school that I didn't recognize the challenges as a child, but definitely later on. So I'll give you an example. Um, some of the earliest memories I have were sitting in math classes in grade one and grade two. And we had these workbooks and they were just like math problems and columns, and you would just do speed math going all the way through it. And there was a couple of students that were um, South Asian and holy smokes, they could just they could navigate those math problems so quickly, but I couldn't. Um, i really, really struggled with that. And, you know, what made it more complicated was that I was a really tired kid. Uh, we had a working family. And so sometimes that work meant that we weren't at home in the evening. We, My parents had cleaning jobs on top of their regular jobs. And as young kids, we would be taken along. So it really didn't necessarily promote um, academics to the extent that some of my, my peers were um, experiencing that. So... When I think back to the challenges that I had just trying to get through basic math in elementary, you know, I started to dismiss education as something that was really of value to me. I started to look at it like, oh, I'll just get through it. It really wasn't something I prioritized. And I remember um, feeling very, very abandoned by my teachers who supported the students that we so commonly call model minority students. They were those students that uh, Um, not only did they excel in the class, but they got that extra attention and support from their teachers in order to to do better. I wasn't the model minority student. I was a student that really sat on the other side. So ultimately, it just brought me to a space of feeling like education is something that you complete as a requirement, but it wasn't something to build into my identity. And it definitely wasn't something that I, I ever felt would be an environment that I could thrive in. Um, And it continued on even as I got older. I remember having another significant experience when I was in grade five. And uh, this time it was, uh, uh, you know, a teacher who spent uh, quite a bit of time overlooking me. So if I put my hand up in my class, I wasn't called on. Um, If I felt that I had the answer, I was ignored. And so over time, it really eroded not only my confidence as a student, but it really eroded kind of the interchange that needs to happen between students and teachers and made me feel that I really wasn't a value in that uh, educational space made me feel that, um, again, it was just a system that was better suited to other people. So quite simply, I stopped putting my hand up and and I spent quite a bit of time going through education, feeling invisible, uh, feeling that it just wasn't for me. Now, what I did, conversely, as I guess kind of a survival strategy was I started to recognize the strength for myself was in building relationships. So I wasn't the strongest academically, but what I can tell you was I became the class clown for quite a bit of my education. Um, I wasn't disruptive, but I I started to actually create quite a few uh, friendships and I built a lot of community with, uh, with people, especially other students that were struggling just like myself. And ultimately, as I I look at how that transformed much later on and how I had to really pivot my thinking around education, the roots of education for me as a young Black child didn't start with this desire to to really advance education. It actually started with the importance of building relationships.
3: That's a really uh, heartwarming story. Um, I wonder then how... uh, Galen, uh, you move from sort of the forgotten child into the role of educator, right? Like could you get tell us a little bit of the backstory of how did that little girl choose to become a teacher?
1: Well, it's um thank you so much for asking that, Natalia. It's um I love to always be able to um kind of think back to what those moments were, especially recognizing that it didn't start out um you know in in terms of being a a clear cut path to a career or a profession um you know i i say quite simply that it started because i was encouraged to run not write and so what i mean by that is as a child academically i didn't get the kind of support that i i hope that i've now you know shared with students that have come through my classroom but i really wasn't encouraged to really pursue academics. And so my strength at that time, especially going into junior high and high school was in athletics, and actually also in music. So I had quite a bit of strength in the arts and quite a bit of strength in athletics. And so um, I was Diana does not know this, but I was a really fantastic flute player for quite some time. And um, it gave me a lot of the confidence that I needed that I, I really had felt was lacking. So it also gave me purpose to start to feel like school was a place that I belonged. So especially in those music classes and and of course in the gym, did I ever thrive? Um, but I was also recognized um, and very esteemed by my teachers in those spaces. So moving into high school, I spent more time in athletics and became um you know somebody who was very successful specifically in the area of uh, soccer and so um it was an interesting uh moment as a child i had not played soccer um formally i was one of those people that just you know kick a soccer ball around and i was asked one day by a coach to just come and try out for the team i said well i don't play he said well you can run fast we just need somebody to chase the ball And so I got out there, chased the ball, was pretty successful with it. I didn't know what I would do with it after I got it, but I I reached it. And after that, they coached me. They developed me um, into a player that went on and actually uh, from there, I was able to go to university and uh, receive a scholarship for it. So I was very lucky. Um, But it was that coach and it was also a couple of teachers in athletics and phys ed that really started to um, shape the way that I could see how that relationship building component could work. So the shift for me was um, in terms of moving into education came when I realized that relationships could actually matter if I move into education. I didn't look at education as a space to prioritize Um, you know, I don't want to say not prioritize academics, but for me, it was a space where um, the building of relationships so complemented content that I would be able to navigate that space. I could finally see myself there. Um, But I do want to just say it was interesting because when I entered into education, I enrolled myself in this program. um, I remember saying to myself, I think I just want the degree. I don't think I actually would like to move into the profession And um, I had a class that I was student teaching and they said, you know, no, you really do need to move into this. You need to become a teacher. So I thought, okay, you know, I could probably give it a try for a couple of years, but I still didn't feel confident academically. And this is me enrolled in university. And I remember being 25 years old when I had the first message that was ever given to me about strength in academics. And it came from a professor that scored me at 99 out of 100 on a paper I wrote. And it was the first time in my life that I ever felt smart. And it was powerful enough for me to look at that person, look at the content that I wrote, and finally say, I think I might be able to do this. I think I might actually be able to teach. Um, but it came from a number of different uh, spaces. So as mentioned, just the influence of having some folks that said, I see you, but I see you, you know, in terms of uh, working in this space, which was VizEd. I also see you in terms of being a person that could work in a school because you are smart. Those were the things that ultimately I, I had to put together. But it, it took quite a bit of work to actually see that education could could in fact be a career path for someone like myself. Oh, Gail,
0: you have got me. This is obviously audio, so people can't see my messy, messy face. <laughs> oh, my gosh, Diana. Oh, yeah, you are incredible, incredible.
1: Oh, thank you.
3: Yep, this is a messy, we're, we're a hot mess. <laughs> Behind the scenes, we're a hot mess, but that's OK. Let's keep plowing, too, because these are beautiful stories that I think are so important to be shared and told. Um, give us then the take, so we've got you know, Forgotten Child, to to now, you know, this aspiring young educator. Uh, Tell us a little bit about how you feel about the Edmonton education system now. Is it more diverse? Has it gotten better? Is it moving in the right direction?
1: Oh, gosh, Um, I have to say that on many levels, I'm so proud of what's happening in education in Edmonton. Um, So I now work in an area that's concentrated in equity, um, diversity and and the transformation of this work is so fresh and so recent um and i i you know we'll just retract that term transformation and say that it's actually the um you know the amplification of this work because on so many levels, it's been ongoing, but it's been so behind the scenes. So um, I'll just tell you a little bit about uh, the career path that I took and and how that brought me to this space. And then I can talk in more detail about some of the shift in education in Edmonton. But um, I started my career as a phys ed teacher. And so again, um, when you move into a space like that, it's expected. You, it, there's no um, I guess eyebrows that are raised when you enter into education um, as a black person in the area of Z and you're working in gyms and you're coaching and you're doing all of those pieces. And um, I think most of us are aware that there's a little bit of a pecking order in terms of um, where, you, where you might sit, you know, on your staff, like uh, your core teachers and academics. So those are the ones that are probably more revered and you're kind of moving down depending on what some of those other subjects are that are taught. So those phys ed teachers weren't always those that were thought of um, or or as highly regarded. So um, there was a space for me there because I was very comfortable with um, just kind of, as mentioned, making good colleagues or having um, good friendships with my colleagues and kind of building from A space where it was, as you mentioned, the forgotten kids kind of found a little bit of a home. So I did, um, I spent about 10 years working in that space of phys ed. And I shared that with you, because I didn't want to leave it was so comfortable to me. And was also really casual and it it just met so many of my needs for that first half of my career it was actually around that time though that um that I ended up meeting Diana because something started to kind of tug at me and um and I started to think that maybe pursuing my grad studies might be worthwhile to you know to try out so I moved into um into the area of social studies after I had graduated um, with a degree in um, communications and technology. And I, again, was kind of finding myself challenged. And I'm I'm going to tell you why it was really tough. It wasn't limited to just the schools that we were in, um, in terms of being the only black teacher. So when I started working um, as a phys ed teacher, again, it was very acceptable to be one of the only black teachers in a school. Um, And even within that, I worked in uh, at, at the high school level in Edmonton. If I were to capture what I knew in terms of how many other black female teachers there were at the high school level in Edmonton, what I can tell you is I saw nobody else that looked like me teaching in no other subject area. And so it was a really big challenge because even if I wanted to ask somebody what their experience was like, that person didn't exist. It was very much me. And as mentioned, it was expected to see somebody that looked like me in phys ed. So after graduating with, um, with a master's, moving into the area of social studies, this was even more foreign. Nobody looked like me. There were, There weren't even black male teachers that were teaching social studies within my school division. Um, I spent some time working at the provincial level, marking, you know, our um, our diploma exams. So those are our, um, you know, a college, basically our university entrance exams. So I worked at that level. And what we would do is bring in all the teachers from across the province that would be markers and we would house them um, in one facility in Edmonton. And we would have marking floors for social studies and marking floors for math and English And I remember one day when we all broke for lunch at the same time, looking around and provincially, there was no core teacher in that space. And we're talking about five to 700 teachers, but there were no core teachers that looked like me. And so I started to um, really recognize that. Um, we're, we're in trouble because the area of social studies that I was responsible for were marking um, position papers and source analysis. And those are perspective built um, responses. And those perspectives I started to see would be limited by those teachers that led those classes, those peers that I had that would be marking. And I also started to realize that my own lens as a marker might not match the standards that we were asked to mark within. So it it was really interesting, because um, even though I thought I knew what I knew, I thought I knew what it was like to be um, one of the few or one of the only, it really shifted when I saw this on a more mass scale, to realize that we really are in a lot of trouble when it comes to the exposure of having black teachers or having teachers of color in these core areas. So fast forward that to uh, the last day that I had in the classroom. And that was March 13th of uh, 2020. And of course we know that's when the pandemic hit and that was unbeknownst to me the last day that I would actually stand in front of a group of kids Um. During that period of time, you know, working offline, i I actually was seconded to do some work within our school division in the area of um, curriculum and learning support. So I started to actually see some behind the the um behind the picture pieces, which was great. These were um, opportunities for me to see, exactly what our curriculum was promoting and so many of the things that I started to recognize as a social studies teacher was the voice of you know or the perspective of colonialism in these lessons and I started to really even challenge what I had taught and how I had adopted um, so many of these perspectives in my own teaching within the, the 20 year, or excuse me, the 10 years that I spent teaching social studies. And it, again, brought me to this space of huge alarm, like, how could I have actually advanced some of this thinking? So bringing me, um, like creating that awareness from just seeing what was uh, what we actually had built our curriculum around, started to give me, um, you know, start to pose questions for me about how to advance the work of equity, diversity and inclusion in educational spaces. And it was almost as, as I started to think about it, opportunities started to awaken. And I'm not really sure how, you know, it was kind of the universal conspiracy to bring all of this into manifestation, but it, it happened just like that. I mean, that was also um, simultaneously at the time that we had the social awakening that came with the death of George Floyd. So there started to be a calling for teachers that look like myself, teachers of color, to come in and speak and to, um, to create awareness or to work on different types of initiatives. And one thing that I realized that I did was say yes to everything. It became really important to pro- proliferate as much as I could in as many spaces because my thinking was if I don't say yes, then they won't. Not only will they not call back, but they'll drop it altogether. Um, so I ended up moving into uh, the space of EDI with the school board based on a lot of the work that I was doing in community building, based on some of the work that I was doing with um, with our uh, local union, based on um, some things I did with government, et cetera. So this began be- began to be a place for me that was so similar to my start in education, where I realized that I didn't necessarily have every competency I needed in EDI, I wasn't necessarily trained in EDI. But what I did know that I could do well was build those relationships, was to build bridges. And an approach that I used was to make sure that the folks that I shared conversations with or spoke to understood that we actually all have a responsibility to build this together. So there are those moments where some folks say, call it out in terms of uh, racism and issues surrounding that. I'm a believer in call it up. How do we actually raise the tide for everybody? How do we have these conversations that create inclusivity so that the partners that I need are partners that come in any shade? You see, in Edmonton, we don't necessarily have the um, the mass amount of newcomers Um, to be able to establish the types of communities that you might see in larger metro areas. These are communities that have more voice and political power and movement. What I found is that it becomes really important to take a look at those folks that want to build the community with you. Sometimes they ask you to stand at the front. Sometimes I ask them to stand at the front, because their leadership might get us into spaces that we would not be invited to. But it's very important for me working in this area to see that folks that um, that come in any shade are people that need to have the same level of passion for change as I do. And the only way to do that is by establishing really solid relationships that are built on trust that also say as a person of color, um, I'm I'm willing to um, go on this, what I call a path to progress with you. In a way that will support your growth, because your growth is actually supporting my growth, and ultimately, what we both want is to um, take a look at at what we get from that to support what comes for the next generation of students, of newcomers, of whoever it may be. So, to carry this back a little bit in terms of asking, answering the question about what's happening in education in Edmonton, I think what's been really pr- profound to me is the Eppington public school board, which is uh, the uh, division that I previously worked for had decided through their board of trustees, as well as um, you know, the superintendent's office that it would actually concentrate a focus on um, equity, diversity, inclusion, and more specifically anti-racism. And we um, started a process where we worked with um community members, uh, well, let me call it school community members. So there was an invitation to anybody who is employed by the division <clears throat> to come in and attend a round table. And those roundtable conversations were um, very rich. They were very emotional. And in some cases they were really distressing. This was the first invitation teachers had, or let me say staff had, to speak to what their experiences in this school division looked like. Now um, it mattered because it was the platform for some of the discussions um, that we had around where we sat as a division with diversity, equity and inclusion. And we started to realize that um, as a division, we didn't have the right policies or strength of policy in place. The language needed to um, be strengthened and the overall tone and messaging that goes out to our staff from the superintendent's office needed to be one that was clearly articulating um, that there was no longer an acceptability for practices that were not based on diversity inclusion and equity so. The school board itself started to make these big shifts. And along the way, they invited me to be one of the folks that got to sit at the table, one of the folks that got to um, work with the type of language that would be used in policy, one of the people that got to um, even advise when we had challenging situations. So I think that when I look at what's happening specifically in that school division, it's one in my future work I'll refer back to and believe that um, the template that they've established is one that could actually be used in places that are wondering what their steps would be, wondering what it would look like to begin to adopt this type of work um, on a large scale.
0: Holy smokes! Again, you're
1: incredible. Oh, I'm giving you too much to have to dissect. <laughs> no, no, <laughs>
0: all very, very good. And thank you for bringing your voice ultimately to to amplify these important ideas and perspectives. And I know that one of the one of the kind of um, uh, things that you've done a lot of work around is using or use of the n-word, and you choose to call it the six-letter word. So can you help both Nat and I and any listeners kind of understand its context and importance in an educational space and what what you have to say about it?
1: Yeah, thank you so much, especially for the invitation to talk about this. Um, I have to start by saying whenever I Um, begin this discussion, there's a huge amount of vulnerability. Um, And and I'll explain it all in detail. So again, um, I am a descendant of chattel slavery. So origins coming from Trinidad. Now, the vulnerability is not in talking about that part. The vulnerability is in sharing this perspective. It's not an academically researched perspective. It quite simply is my own contextualization of how I've had to how I've had to work with that term in educational spaces, how I've been asked to teach other people to, um, to make some shifts in thinking. So it kind of begins this way. I, um, first of all, I, I don't call it the N-word anymore because quite simply words are negotiable. A lot of people will take a look at um, who can use it and who can't. And so a little story that I kind of used to reinforce this comes down to an invitation to my home. If I were to invite you to come into my home for dinner and um, you come to the door, you ring the doorbell and when the door opens, I'm standing there with my mother and I introduce you and I say, hi, this is uh, mom, this is so-and-so and back to that person, I would say, this is my mom. If that guest at the door then goes on to say, oh, hi, mom, upon entry, we would all kind of chuckle and think, oh, it's just a nice term of endearment. It was our greeting and so on. Now, if we can imagine that we're having this nice dinner, we're all you know, sitting at the table, great conversation is happening, but that person continues to address my mom as mom. My mom might then start to think, well, maybe that's a little bit disrespectful. Now, if the challenge comes up where they were then to say, well, why is it that you can call her mom, but I can't call her mom, then we start to actually um, land on who actually has access to that term. So when that person is assuming that it's okay to universally use that word to address my mom, we recognize there's some nuance in language there. It's a point of access. You see, I can access her as a mom, but as a guest, this isn't a term that really is very welcome for you to use. So I start by letting people know that that's why I've kind of shifted because words become negotiable, who gets to use them and who doesn't becomes a very, very complex piece. And so often, when I'm in discussion with this, we've got people that are saying, well, it's just a word. And I'm going to actually establish uh, from my lens, it isn't just a word. This is, um, it's a human condition. So we would never refer to the Holocaust as the H word, we recognize it as a human condition. In this condition uh, where that those six letters are used, that term is used, em- embodied in it is mass murder, embodied in it is genocide, is rape, embodied in it is chattel slavery. It is the dehumanization of people. And it, it lasted from the cradle to the grave for f- over 400 years. When I hear people reduce that human condition down to that word or the n-word. It simplifies what it really means. So as a descendant of slavery, I have to think about what it took for my own ancestors to survive, for my ancestors to um, have been able to, uh, to thrive for all of the things generationally that happened that allowed for me to sit in this very, very privileged space that I occupy now, but at its core was survival. And when I'm hearing, especially in educational spaces, that term being thrown around and being used casually or being negotiated so often by students who will say to their teachers, I have a right to use it. It brings me back to thinking about who has access. So from that lens, when I'm talking about um, why this term has so much impact, from the lens of um, who has access, what I always say is, this is not a term that is for Black people. This is actually um, it. It's an artifact of language that belongs to chattel slaves. And so, when I'm hearing any student that um, that arrives as a newcomer, let's say from African countries, coming into school, believing that that word or term, I should say, belongs to them, I question it because what's your ancestral history with that term? For me, when I look at it. I believe that it's important to, um, to maintain or to, to keep it as a part of the culture that I, I belong to. There are going to be people that will view the use of that term as inappropriate for anybody. And, and to them, I always argue that's incorrect to say that because as an artifact of language, it belongs to the community that are descendants of chattel slaves. And that term is one that they can use as they wish to use. It's a term that um, that my husband regularly uses as an African-American. I wasn't raised with the use of that term, so I, I don't often, well, if ever, say it. So when I'm taking a look at how people um, then will argue... Um, whether being a Black person allows you or provides you with that access, I quite simply say no. It's not a term that belongs to the diaspora. It's a term that belongs to a specific group of of people with a common lived experience that they are the descendants of. So what I try to educate people about is how to navigate that, how to, first of all, understand the weight of it. And that's why I go back to that aspect of this is a human condition. The second thing that I tell people is when that term appears, we also need to um, attach the, the weight that it really bears, which is that term is equivalent to death it was an assignment of death for people during certain historical periods. So to simply even be identified by the one drop rule that occurred in the United States meant that your life, if you were identified as being Black or having any ounce of blood that was Black, would assign you to a totally different trajectory of life. That could include lynching, that could include slavery, it could include a number of different things. So when we think about what happens when that term is articulated, we have to also remember it is the equivalent of death, or the assignment of death for some people. And then the other piece that I try to really land is when we hear that term being used, we have to consider when and where. So in educational spaces, teachers will say to me, well, I've walked past a group of students in the hall, and they They use it and I don't know what to say because they call me racist if I tell them not to use it. And I say the same thing to them. It's not acceptable in educational spaces because it also lands on safety. We really don't know how people are reacting. That might be passers-by. That might be people that are just kind of going along with it. So they're in the moment with, um, with those that are saying it. And they might just simply be complying, but there's aspects of safety. I want you to look at it this way. Um, We don't know for some people, whether that term has been used on them twice on the way to work. We don't know for a child if uh, the night before there was levels of abuse at home, and that term was actually used or weaponized against them. So when I'm talking about this, you know, I, I want people to really understand there's a huge amount of gravity to it. And they we ultimately all need to have an awakening about the impact that those six letters have um, quite simply because they shouldn't be used um, in educational spaces in a casual way. If we're looking at the way that um, folks that are descendants of slavery will view that term within community, if they choose to embrace it because it can be community building, we have no right to step in and to, um, uh, to determine Whether it should be said or not said, it's part of that community to use as an artifact to build on in any which way that they see fit. So there's quite a bit of complexity to it. But what I try to say is in educational spaces, always no. And what we fall back on to say to any student or anybody using it is that it's not safe. Uh, When we're looking at this in other spaces, let's let that community that that term belongs to make those decisions about how they wish to use it
0: thank you yeah words words matter so much and i truly appreciate your vulnerabilities and and sharing all of that perspective because i think it is so important and i i learned a lot there so thank you galen i i also maybe if we can maybe uh, turn a, a corner if you will or switch gears i'm really curious and i want to know more about your new role in the Alberta Teachers Association. So that's starting soon, I know. And (laughs) what are some of these kind of the opportunities that you're excited about in this new role? And what are some of the challenges that maybe you anticipate coming up against?
1: Well, thank you so much. There's uh, probably so much to talk about. I do begin that role February 1st and that's um, very, very fast approaching. (laughs) So, the role itself is called um, an executive staff officer of professional development. And so part of the um, the pieces in which I'll be working is to support the preparation of a uh, future teachers or candidates to the profession. Um, of course, I'll be providing ongoing professional development to uh, to our members. And I'll also be sitting an agency to make representation to the government in any matters of educational policy. At its core, what um, I'm really asked to do is to be a strong advocate for public education. um, And that's with organizations that could be locally, provincially, nationally, or even internationally. And so all of these are um, going to be folded into a job that's going to be taking me to many, many different places that I hadn't necessarily, um, I don't want to say traveled to, but I hadn't spent a great amount of time in within our province. So for most of my life, I've been located regionally in um, central Alberta in Edmonton. Um, I did have some family that was in northern Alberta and have familiarity with that part. Um, Southern Alberta for me was uh, a place that I traveled to when I was um, uh, in college playing soccer but wasn't a place that I spent a lot of time and I've now been designated that region of uh, the province to um, go in and to do some work on files, especially with those um, in some of the post secondaries down there. So where it brings up some challenges is, um, it's kind of interesting number one, there would be an expectation that I would be bringing this EDI lens to the work that I'm doing. However, um, I am an ambassador for the Alberta Teachers Association. And so I do need to maintain um, the voice, the consistent voice that they ask um, to be shared and represented in some of those spaces. But being the only person of color uh, currently working for the association at this level, it's interesting because just by presence, is part of the hope that we can start to introduce some shift and change. So although um, some of the messaging that I have to advance needs to be pretty consistent with the messaging of the association, I think that it speaks a lot to being a person of colour sitting at a table who might be the only person of colour to have ever sat at some of these tables Um, and to be able to actually, uh, you know, work at the level that I am demonstrates that there is space for people um, that look like myself to be able to impact some of the changes that we know need to happen um, in education around equity, diversity, and equality.
3: So now uh, you've got a really exciting role on the horizon and you're taken to that role of course the experience of being a teacher. I'm wondering if you can anticipate some of the benefits or some of the types of supports or resources that you'll be de- developing out for future teachers as you train them?
1: That's such a great question. So I think that um, they're going to be, you know, the, the standard types of workshops and seminars and all of these pieces that we already have built in. But part of my hope would be that we do spend some more time um, specifically looking at building Um, more of these resources around um, diversity and inclusion. So um, our association actually does have a dedicated um, uh, committee for this, the diversity, excuse me, equity and human rights committee. Um, That team does in fact have resources that have been put out. And this actually were resources that were, excuse me, designed maybe uh, I think about eight years ago or so. So it's actually... Um, it's the association has had some mindfulness around this, but we all know that things shift and change. And we all understand that um, we have to really adopt the most contemporary thinking around some of these pieces. I don't know if I'm going to be asked to directly work on some of those assignments or if I'll just be consulted on them. I think um, an interesting aspect to this was um, when when speaking with our executive staff officer, Um, He shared some thoughts with me about the fact that I, um, as a woman of color, am really the only um, Black identified uh, person at this level within our association. And we talked a little bit about what that means and how that can actually be used. Um, It was really important for both of us to recognize the aspects of tokenism that some might try to apply to this role for me. And some might say, well, we've got a Black member on staff. And so, you know, they've got the answers. We're going to go to them for everything. You know, all of those pieces that align with tokenism. We talked a lot about the aspect of um, the medium is the message. It isn't necessarily what I have to say, because as a Black woman, I don't speak for all Black people. I can only speak for my own lived experiences. And so what I am able to offer is visible presence. And it carries a long way, especially in the role of um, of our new teachers coming into, um, into education and seeing somebody that looks like them, that can um, achieve or can move into spaces that normally there wasn't an invitation to move into. So there is a lot of, um, especially from my lens, there's a lot of emphasis on the medium as the message. So um, I view what I'm going to be doing in this role as being consistent with all of my peers. However, being placed at the table is what's going to potentially shift some of the questions. It might potentially shift the way that, um, that I'm addressed. And it might um, you know, really allow us to amplify some of the things that we kind of just let stay under the surface because we're not faced with challenging them.
0: And speaking of some of the shifts and some of the exciting things that have been kind of that you've been involved in in the last year or two, Um, I want to highlight a magazine piece that you brought to life that was entitled Strength, Resilience, Courage, Black Teachers Share Their Stories. And this was for the Alberta Teachers Association magazine and it received gold for best editorial package print for the Alberta Magazine Publishers Association. So that was a mouthful, all is to say, You did good work. You won an award. Tell us about this exciting accolade and really its importance in your work.
1: Well, um, it absolutely has been um, not just a career highlight, but a lifetime highlight. I shared with you before what it was like to be told um, or to be the implication of not being smart. Um, This was probably one of the most pivotal moments in my life to um, have to accept an award for writing. Um, Where did that come from? You know, that's all it was running through my head when I was standing at uh, at this podium, um, you know, sharing things. So um, this this was really um, it was a design of um, the Alberta Teachers Association and their commitment to sitting down with black teachers in June of 2020. And the question was, what can we do to help? And so as this um, this project kind of took shape, it started from a couple of initial conversations, um, especially um, with our president, Jason Schilling, who I would have to say is somebody um, that I would view as being uh, so progressive in his thinking and saying this has to happen. It took us uh, probably about 20. I would say close to 18 months to get everything all pulled together. And what we needed to do was to um, invite writers. We needed to invite people that wanted to work on the project in different ways. So some were historians, we had um, some artists, we had a whole bunch of uh, people that just had stories that needed to be told. Now, the catch was this, none of us have ever written um, in a capacity that that brought us to publishing. None of us ever had the experience of writing like that. So we were placed in the hands of some really amazing editors and they worked with us. And in, um, in my own situation, being invited to work as one of the guest editors, there were a few pieces. I wrote four pieces for that, um, editorial spread. There was, some of them were very difficult to tell. There was a story that I shared with them about one of the most racist experiences that I ever, um, had to, uh experience as a teacher and it came down to a parent coming into uh into a school meeting with myself and a principal and looking at me after being unhappy with his child's grades and standing up hovering over me pointing at me and saying i do not want that black woman to teach my child and sharing that story you know when i tell it to people I have a lot of control in that, but the process of having to write that story and reduce it down to 800 words or 900 words, there's there's something that really create it created quite a bit of crisis for me, to be honest. Uh, there was not only a reliving, but we always have to remember racial experiences are trauma experiences. And so spending a year and a half really diving into that, that piece of trauma, um, it was very cathartic. I did come out on the other side of things, but it was also uh, something that I didn't want to originally share. I didn't want to share it because so commonly people will believe that when you hear the most tragic, the largest racist story that that's what racism is. It really isn't. I call those campfire stories where I share a bad story. You one up and share your next bad story or whatever it is. And At the end of it, you know, we just have a series of bad stories with no real opportunity to ingest that and to reflect on it. So I was hesitant to share the story, but I was then invited to consider how many people would be impacted by it. And so I wrote that story. And I also did what I like to do. I I wrote about the what can you do part. So I had an opportunity to share some best practices um, in regards to that but we also had other teachers that contributed we all put this collection together and when it was all done um we released it we let it go and you know months later it came to print and we celebrated because there we are you know it's uh we're immortalized it was when there was the announcement that uh, that we were nominated for this very prestigious award so um this award covers multiple genres um, in terms of publications and so we didn't see ourselves here and uh, we attended the awards and when it was announced that our editorial package, so our collection of stories, our collection of writing and, um, and uh, collection of uh, contributions was being awarded um, against all of these um, professional writers So many of us didn't even really know what to do with that, but it really took us to a next level of confidence in education. And so what I will say to just kind of wrap that up is the most significant thing wasn't just writing. It was the audience that it reached. It wasn't limited to just educators. So um, that award and um, recognition really opened up so that folks that existed in other types of um, professions They had that magazine sitting in their offices. They have reference to it. And even at the time that I received the award, I was approached by quite a few people from different um, professions. So I remember an architect coming to me and saying, I keep this out. I share this because I want people to understand what is going on um, in terms of racism in our province, and I can't articulate it, but you all have. So it's become something that's um, very beneficial and very useful to people that you know are really stretched beyond um, the spaces of education. And I think it's one of the things that I really, really am most proud of is that sharing all of these experiences remind us that this is the human component to um, to anti-racism it might happen in a school but people experience it in any space that this magazine also is from a design perspective just speaking to my own
3: background is quite beautiful and I hope that everybody takes a look at the the issue maybe Diana you could link it into the podcast
1: yeah thank you so much and they were nominated as well for uh, design layout Natalia so Looks look stunning. I don't know if we have to
3: cut that out or if we don't have to cut
0: that out, <laughs> out. But Gail Ann looks stunning on the cover of this magazine. Mark <laughs> my you. words. So good. So good. Uh, but I was just going to say, uh, Gail Ann, this is kind of a new way of relationship building. If you're kind of thinking about the... The narrative throughout your career and throughout your early life is this relationship builder. This is a new way. You're now building relationships on people's coffee tables, which is kind of <laughs> an incredible thing, right? It's it's a whole other whole other world. The last question I have for you, and I I mean, we could talk for a while, but let's 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 contain this for the listener's sake you've mentioned the what can you do part that you love that you love the what can you do part Mm -hmm. so i want to know what can we do what is an actionable next step that educators at any level could do to foster greater equity diversity and inclusion in their classrooms
1: Thank you for that. Um, there are going to be a million answers and it's it comes from um, so many different folks, not only perspectives, but their lived experience. So I'm going to land that answer on my lived experience. It comes down to what I call the tap on the shoulder. Uh, I think that at any, any educator at any point can, in fact, tap somebody on the shoulder and say, I see you. When I was a student and I did not receive that tap, um, I didn't feel visible in education. I didn't feel like it was um, a place that I would ever thrive. When I moved into um, other spaces, so again, going back to that tap on the shoulder as an athlete, then I was able to kind of create my own um, design around how that could become a possibility. When I think now about an actionable step that any teacher can take, it really comes down to being a person who will just take a moment to pause, identify a student, and it doesn't matter at what age, and quite simply say, I see you, and I think you'd be a great teacher. Now, the person that's tapping might not necessarily believe that, but let's look beyond those traditional qualities. Let's not say it has to be a person who has the command of a room. Let's not say it has to be a person with this great academic um, strength. Let's let's look at, at students at any age, and let's identify their gifts. As mentioned, for me, relationship building was one crucial gift. The other was um, being somebody who really taught. I was uh, commonly kicked out of my classes when I was a student for talking too much. And I spent a good deal of time in the halls of the school one day, um, a counselor walked by and um, he looked at me and uh, he ha- actually happened to be a retired politician. And so I was getting ready to go into high school. I was the end of junior high and he looks at me and he said, whatever you do, don't stop talking. And it was the most magical words to my ears because it actually was the seed that was planted for me to, to eventually become an educator. I knew that I could do that really well. And I knew I could build relationships really well. The rest of it eventually followed, but for anybody that wants to know what they can get up and do tomorrow is identify, identify somebody who will continue to make the profession um, stronger, who will, um, who will create opportunities for voices that are commonly quelled to be heard. Um, tap the youngest person um, that you can find on the shoulder, not even just in a school, but any other space and say, I can really see you doing this because all you're doing is providing an opportunity. You're providing um, a place for somebody to really see themselves and who knows where it will take us. Because at the end of the day, regardless of whether you are physically in the field of education or not, we're all teachers and we all need to recognize that Whatever it is that we can actually um, do to bring about greater equity, greater success in terms of um, um, bringing, uh, finding solutions to anti-racism, all of us that are in society are folks that, um, that matter and make a difference and influence. So let's just simply start by tapping, tapping somebody on the shoulder and saying, I see you.
0: Mm, powerful. And you are incredible and magic. You are pure magic. So thank you so much, Gail Ann, for chatting with myself and with Natalia today. It's been an absolute pleasure and I can't wait to see the more magic that you bring to this next role <laughs> and, and what you're able to what you're able to change and grow and evolve for students.
1: Thank you so much, Diana. I appreciate uh the time that both you and Natalia have uh, put into uh, this conversation and the invitation to just um, share some thoughts with you, especially about my own lived experience. So I appreciate you both so much.